I've lived in northern Monmouth County in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. Now, I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in this part of New Jersey that are involved in the arts, and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Lasapio, talking arts and culture, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Virtually everyone that I've interviewed on this podcast has been someone that I've known. Cody McCory, who I am speaking with today, is no exception. I've known him literally his entire life, and I've seen him grow from a kid mildly interested in music to someone who has made it his life. He is a musician and a composer. He's a bassist primarily, but he does have the distinction of playing the handsaw, an instrument that you've probably never heard played in public. Cody is interesting not just because of the unique instrument that he occasionally plays, but also because, in my mind, he's sort of a renaissance man because he doesn't limit himself in the types or the genres of music he plays. Cody, let's start talking about Frank Zappa. Oh, okay. Because obviously he's one of your inspirations. He is. He's a very talented, he was a very talented musician and arranger and jumped successfully from rock to jazz to classical, mm-hmm. released more than 50 albums, and some of his work was even performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. So he was able to attract some of the world's best musicians. Mm-hmm. What specifically drew you to him? Probably just that, his reckless genre bending, his unique style of composition, which does not really relate to any specific academic study. It's very unusual and like very much just him because he wasn't trained classically or anything like that. He just did independent study. And uh, just like you're saying, he gathered so many amazing musicians that went on to do other things like Adrian Blue, who was his guitar player, who went to play with Bowie and Talking Heads and all these other great bands. But I wonder if the misogyny and the homophobia of his lyrics bothers you. Yeah. How, do you how do you defend titles like Keep It Greasy or Titties and Beer? Oh, there's worse ones than that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Man, Bobby Brown Goes Down is a, a really brutal song, lyrically. And I think at the end of the day, when you get to know Frank and you look into his politics, you realize that he's that's not his message. His message is satire mm. and absurdity. Nowadays, I don't think any of that music would fly. Absolutely not. And maybe did he take advantage of people's will? willingness to listen to misogynistic lyrics? Probably, and that's probably immoral. But it was, at the end of the day, satire. He wasn't promoting misogyny. Maybe at some level with the groupie culture, he was living it. But yeah, it's a really hard question, and I don't have an excuse for it. I'm not going to try to defend the guy, other than I will say that it was satire and humor for the most part. Let me ask you, I've been interviewing people that I know, and of course I've known you for a long time, Mm -hmm. but you fall into a different category because you're (laughs) younger. Tell us how old you are. I'm 28. 28, wow. So let's talk about the slow death of live music. Mm. Because even before COVID, there were so many fewer venues for live groups to play in. When you did gig prior to this lockdown, were you doing original music? I was. That was obviously not where the money was until I had joined a band from farther north called Thank You Scientist. And they are doing very well with their original music and touring. Uh, And I'm lucky to be in that band.
bands are you in? I would say I'm in four bands that I would call like my band. Thank you, Scientist, We Used to Cut the Grass, Karmic Juggernaut, and Homeless Sapiens. All of which are sort of diverse, bizarre, kind of progressive rock. But uh, I write actively write music for those bands. Do you find it difficult to find venues that are willing to book you knowing that your music might not be recognizable? Oh yeah, progressive rock is not the easiest sell, for sure. It depends though, because like some venues like The Saint and places like that are looking for things that are out of left field because mm -hmm. that's, that's what they want. They don't want the, the usual thing. You started a long time ago as a drummer, and then you eventually became a bassist. <laughs> you might be the only person on earth who even knows that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Gary Dates taught me how to hold a pair of drumsticks, and that might be my maybe my earliest like musical memory. But you play uh, other instruments. Most interestingly, the saw. Yeah, I do play the handsaw. Did you see someone else or hear someone else playing the saw and then decided you wanted to try it, or did, did you just come up with this? I did. I saw it in a movie called uh, Delicatessen, which is a French horror movie, which is really good. And uh, then I, the next day I went to the hardware store, and I was like, you know, why not me? Let's talk about your influences. I've been talking to musicians who play rock, fusion jazz, Motown, R&B, blues. What are the genres that you play and what influenced you to get into those? That's tough. I think uh, I jump around a lot. As far as like regular side gigs, I do a lot of jazz, traditional jazz, modern jazz, fusion, whatever. I play upright bass too. Jazz was really like my earliest study in music as far as like learning music theory and stuff like that. Otherwise, it's anything. You know, it's, it's rock. I play country gigs. There's no genre of music that I would turn down or not do if someone hired me to do it. Let's talk about touring, which is what practically every musician says they want to do. The travel element is great. It's A lot of people think touring is like a vacation or something like that. <laughs> it's really not. It's hard work. And like seeing the country is strange because like you end up seeing how homogenous the country is in one aspect mm. where like when we're in a the bandwagon, which is like a small tour bus, we'll stay at Walmart like every night. So like <laughs> you've crossed the country, you're in a completely different place, but you wake up seeing the same thing every day, yeah. you know, which is some variation on a Walmart parking lot, which only changes so much. And then obviously the political landscape changes a lot. That's really where you realize how different the country is from one place to another. You've been a part of the fusion jazz group Ice Nine, which is an instrumental band that my husband Gary formed with Tim Boyce. Right. Now they're old enough to be your father. It's true. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the experience of playing with men who are so much older than you and so much more experienced. Do you do you find it intimidating or do you find it more of a learning experience? It's really no different. I don't think I feel any differently about it than playing with people my own age. I mean, it's definitely a learning experience as far as like hearing stories and learning different jazz theory things that maybe I wasn't aware of. But but mostly it's a lot, it's just like playing with people my own age. It's almost like age doesn't factor into it at all. Yeah. So virtually every musician wants to make a living at their craft. And the fact that you've been able to tour mm -hmm. makes you kind of a role model. Because a lot of musicians never get that opportunity. Is your musical career giving you a living wage? Can you live on the money that you make as a musician? I will say up until this year, it 
was and it was getting better and better every year with thank you scientists that band's definitely on the way up we've done like 10 national tours i think at this mm. point and on the road you know with merch sales and everything we're doing pretty well but obviously the pandemic has pretty much grinded all that to a halt so we're all concerned about what's coming next but if we can get back to work then i think things, things will be fine even after coronavirus musicians really can't sell their music anymore since people now think that they should get music for free right. and that's what they expect how can a musician make money other than by getting I think it's probably more complicated now than it used to be. There's definitely no money in album sales unless like you have a really dedicated fan base that wants to buy your physical records directly from you and you don't have a bad record deal or something like that. It's kind of a minefield, honestly. It's very probable that you'll run into a bad record deal where even if you do sell lots of physical records, you're not going to get a good percentage of it or something like that. Yeah. But also the desire for physical records is almost gone in a lot of ways. So what is your experience dealing with a record label? Very poor. I don't think they're necessary at all anymore. I think with the tools that we have between easy digital distribution and recording yourself and stuff like that, like that business model of needing the label to like fund your recording session and do all your PR or whatever they want to do or whatever the deal is, I think that's just outdated. Yeah. Do you think that your approach to music now as a career is, is different than it was in earlier generations? So like, for example, Nobody in the 1980s had social media to, to promote themselves. Right. And the labels controlled the industry. Right. In some ways it's better, in some ways it's a lot more pressure. At some level, it's cool because you have so much control and all these tools at your disposal, and that's awesome. On the other hand, it's like you're expected to do everything. You're own promoter, you're recording yourself, you're booking the, booking the shows, yeah. you're doing everything. And then like by the time you handled all that stuff, it's like there's no time left to write and rehearse music, which is really all you want to do in the first place. Um, so at that level, like having some kind kind of management or people to help you out with that probably makes sense. But if you you know if you have the hustle and you can do all that stuff, then that's when you're really in the best position to make money. So if you weren't a musician, if you couldn't be a musician, what could you see yourself doing? Now that's a good question. If I wasn't a musician, I'd probably do something some kind of public service, something that just helps people, I would think. Mm -hmm. Or maybe like animals, I don't know. That's like a really bland response. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah, so you can tell I haven't put a whole lot of thought into yeah, that. Yeah, well, you're, you're focused on what you're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, I guess so. A lot of musicians get so much pushback from their parents or their partners because because it is hard to make a, a living as a, any kind of an artist, especially a musician. But you come from a family that is really supportive of the arts. Your father's a musician. Your mother is an artist. Mm. Your sister is an actor slash producer. So both you and your sister are now currently pursuing careers in the arts. Right. Right. And Dan is doing mostly writing now, and mm. she is selling a lot of things, and she's doing really well. I'm lucky to have grown up in a family that supports that. Does the fact that Diana took that route first as an actor and now writer-producer, did that have an impact on you? I don't know. I think we kind of both decided to get into what we were going to get into at the same time. Yeah, as far as her going off to school to study acting, I didn't want to go to college at all. I kind of had to be pushed to go into music school, and then I dropped out anyway because it didn't seem necessary or worthwhile. And a lot of these things that you would learn in school, you can just learn through independent study, kind of like the way Frank Zappa did. Learning about his story and the way he put his band together made me just want to do that. Does the support of your parents make you different from most of your contemporaries? I don't think so. Most of the kids my age, I don't know why I call them kids now that we're in our <laughs> late 20s, but their parents are supportive for the most part. And I, I will say that like we're making a living wage, but a lot of us do still live at home. 
When I married Gary, of course he was a musician, what I saw happening with a lot of other musicians' wives was once they got married, and especially once they had a kid, oh, now you have to get a real job. Yeah. And my attitude was always, you married a musician. You kind of knew what you were getting into. Right. So, like, if you didn't want to marry a musician, you shouldn't have married a musician. Right. It's tough. Yeah, the, the touring makes it difficult in the, you know, separation, but obviously that's where a lot of the money is, too. Like, if you can play six or seven nights a week and, uh, you know bring home money, then that's uh, that makes all the difference in the world. Other than Frank Zappa, are there other musicians who have really influenced you? Oh yeah, for sure. Igor Stravinsky, which kind of ties into Zappa because he was Zappa's primary influence. Growing up, I listened to a lot of Medeski, Martin, and Wood, which is just an, an amazing trio. A lot of jazz composers, you know, Wayne Shorter, Sun Ra, all kinds of stuff, really. But a lot of classical and jazz stuff, I would say, outside of Frank. Yeah, one genre that a lot of people have a problem with is rap. Have you ever been a rap fan? Yeah, no, I am, for sure. It's not my primary genre that I listen to, but there's a lot of amazing rap artists. Like, I think, obviously, Kendrick Lamar is, like, at the forefront of it right now. But there's a lot of great stuff out there. It's a little confusing me that so many people have a problem with it, honestly. Well, I know some people have said that they feel that it's not really, there's no melody. Right. So it's really just rhythmic poetry. Right, but um, a lot of those people aren't musicologists. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> who's to say what makes music music? You know, if it, if it makes you feel something and it involves sound, <laughs> then I think that's probably enough. Now, I, I interviewed another bass player. I usually don't like to ask the same questions, but I'm going to ask you the same thing that I asked him. Drummers mm. and bass players will tell you that that's the backbone of any band, the rhythm section. What's your feel on that? It's definitely true. I mean, I think all through, even through music history, like, you know, back in the medieval and Baroque times, all music was off of the bass line. The bass line was like the only written part. They would just double that. It was called basso continuo, and you would just play that, and that was the only written part. Everything else could be improvised. Even the melody could be improvised a lot of the times. So that's always been the fundamental thing. And as far as rap music today, like, that's all about drums and bass. That's yeah. like 90% of the composition is your bass line and, and the whatever drum thing is happening. Now, I don't have any education in music theory. Would having some knowledge on that help me or give me a deeper understanding of what I'm listening to? I don't think the mathematical element of music theory mm. would be useful unless you're trying to actually put something together musically. But music history, you can study without any knowledge of music theory. And the way music has evolved, you can definitely look at that. And that's like super interesting. I've always wanted to play the violin, so I bought one a nice. couple of years ago. And I was trying to teach myself using YouTube videos, but first of all, it takes so every time I would have to tune it. Yeah, tuning a violin's not easy. Oh no, teaching myself was not going to be that easy. It's tough. I don't know if that's an instrument you can really teach yourself. I think you gotta have a, you need an instructor because yeah. it's so much like posturing and like technique. Do you play the violin? I play upright bass, which you can play arco, which is the biggest member of the violin family. Yeah. I play a member of the violin family, but I don't play violin. <laughs> I play a member, but I think I killed it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my last question. If somebody told you that they were planning to make a career out of being a musician, two parts, which instrument would you encourage them to play, and what other advice would you give them? As far as what instrument you want to play, I think that's totally dependent on the person. But also, if their goal is to write music, and write music for other people, I would suggest piano, because that's just the best instrument to write from. And I'd probably suggest piano as the first instrument to approach anyway, just because like it relates to everything and all of Western music is kind of built from that mm -hmm. instrument. What kind of advice would you give them about becoming a musician as a career? I don't know. Being that I have been able to get a living wage out of it until now is great, but I've fought tooth and nail every step of the way, and it has been like extremely difficult. I don't know if I'm in a position to really be giving advice about that, <laughs> and being that it's still like such an active struggle for me. 
Cody, thanks so much for coming today and speaking with me. I really different insight into music than I've heard before. Yeah, thanks for having me. I love the arts, and I love to talk, and that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucille Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Mm-hmm.